they plan to complete an Old Testament survey, our study of um, the life of Saul and begin the study of the life of David. Now you remember that we've been divided, or at least we have divided into 11 periods. Right now we're on what is called the theocracy. And I pointed out uh, the monarchy. I pointed out that Israel's history has gone through three types of government. First of all, the theocracy. That's about the first five periods, from the call of Abram down in Egypt, the wilderness, and the tribal period, the period of the judges. Theocracy, when God was the king and there was no human king. Then, 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, when Samuel was old and his sons were corrupt, they came to Samuel and said, we want a king like all the other nations. Samuel was disturbed by this, went to the Lord in prayer, and God said, well, give them a king. They haven't rejected you. They rejected me from being king over them. So Samuel gave them a king. The first one was Saul. The second one was David. The third one was Solomon. Then begins the period of the monarchy. That runs from 1050 B.C. until 586 B.C. when, Babylon, when uh, the southern kingdom fell to Babylon. The northern kingdom fell in 721. The southern kingdom fell in 586 B.C. Now that's called the period of the monarchy. That monarchy era embraces three periods. United kingdom, divided kingdom, and single kingdom. Three periods are embraced in the monarchy era. The United Kingdom, 1050 to 930. The divided kingdom, 930 to 721. The single kingdom, 721 to 586. During all that period, over 500 years, they were ruled by uh, human kings. And so we call that period the period of the monarchy. Thank you. Then, then uh, after they were overrun by foreign nations, from that time on, they were dominated by foreign kings and foreign nations, so we call that the period of dependency. 586 B.C. First, um, the Babylonians. Second, the Medo-Persian Empire. Third, the Greeks, Alexander the Great and his descendants. First, under Egypt, the Ptolemies, who are Greek, and uh, then the Ma and then the uh, 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 the descendants of Antiochus Epiphanes, General Antiochus. Then eventually they fell under the Roman uh, domination, and Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. All that time under foreign domination. So that's a period of dependency. Now we're on the era of the monarchy, which includes three periods. That is the United Kingdom, the divided kingdom, the single kingdom. Now, the first uh, period in that is the United Kingdom, and the United Kingdom runs from 1050 B.C. to 930 B.C. What is 1050 B.C.? What is that date, 1050 B.C., except the year after 1051 B.C.? What is 1050 B.C.? The choice of the first king, Saul, right. Now, what's 930 B.C.? The death of Solomon, the third king over all the whole 12 tribes, the whole nation. Only three kings over all 12 tribes. Saul, David, Solomon. And Saul didn't really exert it over all 12. Saul, David, and Solomon. 
and nine, 10.50, the choice of Saul begins it, and uh, 9.30, the death of Solomon ends that. The kingdom <clears throat> under Solomon, David, and Saul. Now we come, first of all, to the kingdom of Saul. That runs from 1 Samuel chapter 8 to 1 Samuel chapter 31. 1 Samuel 8 to 1 Samuel chapter 31. There are three great uh, stages in Saul's life. 1 Samuel 8 to 1 Samuel chapter 31. And I have them up here on the board. 1 Samuel 8 to 31. Number one, Saul's election to the throne. Number two, Saul's rejection from the throne. And number three, Saul's declension and David's rise. Now we looked at the first two last time. First of all, Saul's election to the throne. 1 Samuel 8 to 12. And there are two things there. First of all, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, the nation comes to Samuel and said, we want a king to be like all the other kings to lead us in battle and to conquer our enemies. Samuel didn't like that. Went to God in prayer. God said, give it to them. Give it to them. It's not my desire, but they rejected me, not you, so give it to them. Hosea 13.10, I gave them a king of my anger, and I took them away in my wrath. So, so they were given the right to select the king. So in 1 Samuel 9 to 12, we are told of the selection of the first king, and that's Saul. And that goes through three processes. First, he's anointed privately by Samuel. Secondly, he's publicly announced by Samuel. But there's some resistance against him. So, step three, he's victoriously confirmed in that position by a great battle and a great victory. And Saul now is in the saddle well as the king, the first king over Israel. That's his election to the throne. Now follow two failures, two tragic failures, by which Saul is rejected. And they both involve two wars. The first war is against the Philistines. And you remember that in that war against the Philistines, 1 Samuel chapter 13, 1 Samuel chapter 13, you recall that Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel to come up and offer the sacrifice. And Samuel delayed his coming, so Saul very presumptuously went in and acted the part of the priest. God had warned against uniting the office of king and the office of priest. Long before Thomas Jefferson, God had erected a state, uh, a wall between the office of the king, political, and the office of the priest, religious, long before that. And, uh, and Saul, Saul crossed over and entered into the office of the priest and offered a sacrifice. And Samuel came a few hours later, knew what he had done, Samuel said, God has rejected your descendants from ruling over this kingdom. Your descendants won't follow you. The next war was against the war of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were bitter enemies of Israel. Whenever Israel was weak, the Amalekites seemed to know it. And they would move up against them and devastate their villages. So God said to Saul, go and destroy destroy the Amalekites, destroy all of them. Total, total destruction. Saul didn't. He saved the best, he saved the king. And by the way, the descendant of that king, 
the descendant of that king, is the one that gave the problems to the Jews in the days of Esther, in the book of Esther. That was the man. He was a descendant. He was an Agagite, descendant of King Agag. He gave them trouble over that thing. And Saul disobeyed God and kept the best of the cattle and the best of the goods. And, and King Agag, and you recall the story, uh, Samuel came to him, have you done all that God commanded? He said, I have, and just then the sheep bleated. And he said, what means the bleeding of the sheep, mine ears? And so then Saul began to hunt around for a good excuse. Saul was a master scapegoater. And he looked around for excuses and gave some excuses. They wouldn't stand up. So God said to uh, Samuel said, now, God has not only rejected your dynasty, God is now rejecting you from being king. And from now on, we're going to be looking for your successor right away. From that point on, we watched Saul begin to decline. I think Saul was a believer, but we see him decline. He uh, is driven by jealousy and hatred of David. It becomes a passion with him. And, uh, and then eventually he gets down to the place where he goes to a seance, for advice from the witch of Endor, and we'll pick up that story at that time, at this time. Now, you remember there are four things that take place in Saul's declension. First of all, David's rise to fame. I took this up last time, chapter 16 to 19, by four events. David rises to fame while uh, Saul is declining. He's anointed, he's brought to the court, he defeats Goliath, and he withstands eight attacks of Saul against him to try attempts to kill him. Then the second thing was Saul the pursuer and David the fugitive. That's 1 Samuel chapters 20 to 26, and David flees, and Saul makes three major attacks on David. You recall, in two of them, David had an opportunity to kill Saul, but he didn't. The first one, the cave in Gedi, he cut off part of his garment. When Saul left the cave of Gedi, went the other side of the mountain, David cried out, Saul, Saul, and Abner, Abner, the general, how come you didn't protect your king? And Saul, here's your garment. I could have killed you. I didn't. I have nothing against you. I don't want to kill you. You're the Lord's anointed. Saul said, you're right, my son David. But that didn't stop him from the desire to kill him. Then on another occasion, you remember, one day in the wilderness of Ziph, General Joab and David about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning while all the camp was asleep, slipped in to Saul. Joab said, uh, finish him off. Put the spear through him, finish him off. David said, no, he's the Lord's anointed. No matter how much he pursues me and hates me, God has his hand on him. He's the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to kill him. So he didn't. But he did take his sword and he took his cruise uh, of water and when he got to the other side of the hill, he called out to Saul once again, told Saul, I have nothing against you. I spared uh, your life. Now we come to the third thing, and that's Saul's final declension and death. And the four events in Saul's final declension and death. Chapters 27 to 31. Four things in Saul's final declension and death. Let's cover them quickly. That's chapters 27 to 31. 
See, I have it up there. Point number three, declension. Well, it's uh, not up there, is it? All right, declension. Under there, there are three things, one, two, and three. And this is the one I'm on right here. I gave you the other two last week. The third one is Saul's final declension, final decline, and his death. And there are four things under that, and I think they're all on the outline. Saul's final decline and death, 1 Samuel 27 to 31. First of all, there's the flight of David to Philistia. That's in chapter 27. David knows after all these attacks that his life is not safe in, in Judah. So he flees to Philistia. And when he gets down to Philistia, he gets in a very compromising position. Here is a, a Philistia on the map. If I can locate a, a good map that will uh, give us the territory, this. Here's this Philistia right here. Now, that's a small thing on the map, but Philistia gave more trouble to the Israelites than any other group. So David flees from Saul down to Philistia, from that point down to Philistia, and lives among the Philistines who've always been the enemy. Now, the, uh, you probably know the Philistines came uh, eventually from one of the islands in the Mediterranean. They went on down to Egypt, and the Egypt, Egyptians repulsed them down here. So they came up and settled on the southern coastland of Palestine, and the Philistines gave their name to the land. It's called Palestine after the Philistines. Samuel, uh, David, led on down to the Philistines and uh, said, I've come down here. They're after me to kill me. And so the Philistine king of the city to which he went said, well, my enemy is the same as your enemy, so you must be my friend. So we'll let you live here. And he gave him a place to live there, Ziklag. And he stayed there, Ziklag, in Philistia. Now, at the same time, however, the Philistines came into battle against, uh, started making incursions, invasions, in, against the Israelites. And they, <clears throat> they eventually joined the battle up here in the northern part of what we call Palestine. So that put... David in a very compromising position. And later on, when David joins with the Philistines to fight against the Israelites, the, the Philistine princes, as they're called, say to the king, send that man and his army back. We'll get in the heat of battle against the Israelites, and blood is thicker than water, and he'll turn against us and fight with his own people. Send him back. And so they sent David back as much as the king liked David he had to send him back David stays down in Philistia among ancient enemies of Israel now while he is there down in Philistia the Philistines begin a campaign they make several invasions into the land of Canaan against Israel Saul wants to know what to do Samuel's gone <clears throat> can't can't get advice from Samuel. The normal means, the Urim and Thummim, or other means of finding out God's will directly from the religious leader, are now closed. The ark is gone. 
The ark is down in the land of Philistia. It's gone. So there's no way Saul tries to find counsel from some religious leader, and there's no way he can find a, because he'd get a religious leader, a prophet, <clears throat> and ask the prophet to find out the mind of God, what he ought to do. And Saul can't find anybody to do that. He's hounded the priests. He killed, he had 70 priests killed. David is down here in Philistia. The ark is down here. Samuel, dead, won't talk to him. Dead now. Obviously couldn't talk to him. So Saul doesn't know what to do. Now, what he does do eventually, you probably know. He goes to a medium. He sits in a seance. He goes to the witch of Endor. Endor's up north here. And, and the Bible has condemned unequivocally going to seances, to witchcraft. And more than that, Saul himself, prior to this, has condemned witchcraft on the pain of death. Paul has get out, put out, if, if, if I find anybody engaged in seances, any medium, any witchcraft, anybody operating with what they call a familiar spirit. A familiar spirit is a demon. That person will be put to death. But Saul doesn't know where to go. So he, he puts on some old baggy clothes and messes up his face and puts on a disguise and makes that trip up to a well-known medium spiritualist, the witch of Endor. He comes in with his men behind him, comes in, says, I want you to do something for me. She said, don't you know that King Saul has for <coughs> forbidden this? And I certainly won't do it. Well, he said, I'll take care of King Saul. Of course, he was King Saul. I'll take care of King Saul, won't have any trouble. Both know, all right? So they have a seance. Have a seance. So the witch event, to the medium surprise, she calls up Samuel. To her surprise, Samuel comes up. But doesn't come up by the medium, by the demon. See, the, 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 the witch of Endor is under control of the demon. And... And she calls upon the demon to bring up Samuel to her utter surprise. Samuel comes up, but he comes up because God supernaturally brought him up. The only case ever in the Bible to take this place because seances, this sort of thing, is openly condemned many times in the Old Testament. But this is not a seance. This is where God supernaturally intervenes and comes up and is as much a surprise to the witch of Endor as it is to Saul. And so Samuel says to Saul, Saul, why are you troubling me? Well, he says, I want to know what to do. Shall I go out and battle against the Philistines or not? Samuel said, <clears throat> said I'm not going to tell you. Don't trouble me anymore. But I want to announce to you that your kingdom is rejected and that you and your sons are going to be killed. And then Samuel disappears. Now, I'd like to take some time on that, but I can't, see. But you ought to get a good book there because sometime you're going to run across somebody who's going to support 
uh, going to seances and spiritualism on the event that took place in the Saul and the Witch of Endor. But <clears throat> first, uh, going to seances and, and, and trying to get knowledge and trying, see this is what is called necromancy. Necros is, necros is death. Necrology, the study of death. Necros is death. Mancy comes from mantia, which speaks of a spirit or a demon, spirit or a demon. Necromancy means the contact of the dead through spirit beings. Necromancy, or a familiar spirit, is absolutely condemned in the Word of God. I run across people every once in a while that say, should we communicate with the dead? The answer to that is no, the Bible condemns it under severe judgment. This was not necromancy. This is in a case in which God supernaturally intervened, in the only case in the Bible, supernaturally intervened, and brought up Samuel himself from the dead, just as Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. So Samuel was brought up to deal with Saul, and, and he, the first question he asked, why do you trouble me? Which in effect is, why did you even ask me to come up? It was wrong to do it. Why did you trouble me? And then he condemns Saul and his sons and disappears. Well, that's devastating to Saul. Devastating to Saul. He knows. He trusts Samuel. He has great confidence in Samuel. And he knows that whatever Samuel speaks is probably going to be true. And so, so Saul leaves the witch of Endor and is... Uh, greatly disturbed. In the meantime, in the meantime, in the meantime, back home, as they say, uh, David, they're up here with the Philistines. David is sent back to Philistia by the princes. They don't want David fighting with him. They figure he may be a fifth columnist. So they send him back here. When David gets back there to Ziklag, he finds that the uh, Amalekites <clears throat> have invaded Ziklag carried off all the women and children, burned the city. And David's uh, soldiers are incensed against David, since that he took them up there and left that city vulnerable to the Amalekites. So David gets an army together, <clears throat> finds one man out in the field who had served as a servant to one of the soldiers, the Amalekite, discovers where they are, and he locates the Amalekites, and he destroys them, and he retrieves all of their goods, and retrieves all of their, all of their, uh, all of their uh, wives and children, bring them back, and retrieves all of the goods of the Amalekite. And when he gets back, a very good psychological uh, thing. David takes those spoils and sends them to key cities in the city in the land of Judah, indicating to them that he is still their friend. Then comes the last event in Saul's life. Saul's death, his suicide. <clears throat> Saul uh, uh, and, and meets, the, meets the Philistines up what is called Mount Gilboa. This is the general area. It's kind of a group of mountains. Mount Gilboa up here in northern Palestine. Meets them and joins them in battle at Mount Gilboa. And the, uh, and the battle goes against Saul and for the Philistines. And 
First, Jonathan and his brother is killed, as Samuel predicted. And then <clears throat> Saul is wounded. He sees that there's no hope. That his cause is doomed. He's um, been emotionally disturbed years. He's given himself over to witchcraft. He's at the end of his rope. So he says to one of his soldiers, go ahead and run me through, kill me. And the soldier said, no, I won't kill you. I won't touch you. So Saul falls on his spear and commits suicide. And that ends the tragic story of Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 31. Saul is a tragic, tragic figure in the Bible. I have to believe that Saul was a true believer. The spirit came on Saul and... Uh, uh, and stayed on him for a long time and left him. Saul goes to Samuel. Saul was a true believer, but his life ended in tragedy. He lost the kingdom. He lost his sons, and he ends in suicide. And <clears throat> there are probably three basic reasons for Saul's failure. I wish I had time to stop and preach on these because they're very important. But the three basic reasons probably for Saul's failure. First one, is disobedience to God's revealed will. That takes place twice. God told Saul exactly what to do. First Samuel 13, first Samuel 15. And twice Saul flagrantly disobeyed God's revealed will. Uh, you remember what Jesus said, John chapter 13, after the washing of the feet? If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Why does the old hymn go, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey? That was one of the first hymns <clears throat> I suppose I ever learned. When I was a young boy, about nine or ten years old, I happened to attend a very liberal church. But I also happened by God's providence to come under the uh, influence and the teaching of a returned Methodist missionary. She was a great, godly woman. She had spent 40 years in China. She had gone through the Boxer Revolution, spent 40 years in China, a single lady, and she was one of the few people that I would call a true soldier of the cross. She was tremendously self-disciplined. And uh, um, she had a class, and she talked at that Sunday school class for one year, and she talked about being born again, about the blood of Christ, about the virgin birth, and she was a little too conservative. So they relieved her of the Sunday school class and said, we'll give you a class of boys <clears throat> after church. Well, now, how many red-blooded boys, you know, 11, 12 years old, going to sit in a third class, Sunday school 9.30 to 10.30, church 10.45 to 12, how many boys are going to go trotting up to a third Bible class from 12 to 1? Well, so happened about 15 boys did. The reason they did that when they sat under her, though they couldn't explain why, they sensed they were getting the real thing. And uh, so she just taught her. She was kind of a forerunner of child evangelism and navigators put together. And she told us Bible stories, told us the gospel again and again, then she took six of us boys. She had uh, from 65 to 83 years of age, she had 300 children around the city that she'd hold classes, kind of like child evangelism classes. 
she took six of us boys then and asked the six of us to come to her home and uh, each individually one-on-one -on -one. and uh, I went there from a uh, Wednesday afternoon from th <clears throat> from 3 to 345 3 not 259 see not 301 3 o'clock and 345, not 344, not 346, 345. And she sold, in my heart, sold the word of God. Taught me the scripture, then we'd end in prayer. Miss Alice Lang, she was about 68 then, I was about 10, 11 years old. I always thought she, she never cracked a smile, never joked any, you know, <laughs> never cracked. She didn't have much time for that. And I always thought she walked about uh, six inches off. I was real careful, I was six inches off the floor. Great godly lady who had a profound influence in my life. And a few years later, I was saved at a evangelistic meeting, but it was her faithful ministry of God's Word uh, that not only brought me to salvation, but also prayed me into the gospel ministry, into the school which I attended, and into the gospel ministry. Now, uh, we always had a Christmas party, and we always had about 250 children, and we always ate dessert with chopsticks. See, it's in China. Ice cream with chopsticks. And we always finished. I've got a point to this now. You won't believe it. But we always finished by singing that hymn. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, and so on, and then ended by the chorus, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, that's very simple, isn't it? But do you know that the simplest hymns are often the most profound hymns? Jesus loves me, this I know. What's the next one? Not for experience. For the... That's good to remember in the debate on inerrancy today. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's how I know God loves me. The Bible tells me so. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. How is a Christian happy in Jesus? Very simple. How is it? By trusting God day by day and by walking in the path of obedience. And Saul failed, as we will all fail, if we flagrantly, if we disobey God's revealed word. That's certain doom in our Christian life. And Saul failed because we disobeyed God's word. Another reason that Saul failed, Saul failed, the second reason Saul failed is because he wasted his privileges. Wasted privileges. Wasted privileges. I wish I had a half hour to speak on that one because I see that so often. Here was Saul, <clears throat> a man that stood head and shoulders above any other man. A man whom God had highly gifted physically, intellectually, with the people they loved him. Uh, uh, God had highly gifted Saul in, in many, many ways. Uh, Good-looking, tall, handsome, uh, a certain native shyness that was attractive. And... Uh, a certain, at the beginning, a certain reliance upon God for what he needed to do and a certain awesomeness that the people elected him in this position. And he was a good mind, a keen mind. Had all the privileges 
to be a great man for God. But he wasted them. Wasted them. Wasted them. How many people, young people, do we see today? We're wasting the God-given privileges God has given to them. Wasted. And they die young. Maybe commit suicide. The tragedy of wasted privileges. And the third great reason for Saul's failure is that Saul let the root of bitterness get into his soul. And he nursed it, and nursed it, and nursed it, and destroyed it. You ever read Moby Dick? I did years ago, because they told me every intelligent person ought to read Moby Dick. So I, I labored through the thing. I must be unintelligent, because I didn't like it except at times. But I finally understood what he was driving at. Here was a man that was gripped almost insanely by one great passion, and that was to get that whale and destroy it. <clears throat> Saul was gripped by one great passion, and that was to get David and kill him. He was envious of David and jealous of David, and the road of bitterness got up in the soul of Saul, and he nursed it, and he nursed it, and he nursed it, did it destroy David? No. Who did it destroy? Saul. Destroyed Saul. On several attempts, he tried to eight times he tried to kill David. Till the end of his days, he nursed a grudge against David and tried to kill him. Interesting. Who was Saul's son? Jonathan. Did Jonathan know that David would be the next heir? Yes. What did Jonathan do? He acquiesced in the will of God, and he helped David. See? He acquiesced in the providence of God and helped David, helped him to stay alive, not Saul. He nursed the grudge against David and nursed it, nursed it, and it grew and grew and grew, and it just eventually destroyed David. You know, the Bible warns us, my friend, Hebrews chapter 3, don't let the root of bitterness grow up in your soul. The root of bitterness will destroy marriages. The root of bitterness will destroy families. It will set father against son and son against father. The root of bitterness. It will destroy <clears throat> church relations. You can see churches that flounder, break up because of the root of bitterness. It's a terrible thing. The root of bitterness. Saul let the root of bitterness grow up in his soul. And that root, when it grew up, finally destroyed Saul. He committed suicide. All right, now we come secondly to David, the kingdom under David. We finished with Saul. Now we're going to come to the kingdom under David. The kingdom under David. That's the second great uh, uh, state under the United Kingdom. First Saul, 40 years. Now David, 40 years. The kingdom under David. The scripture for that is second. Uh, well, it's really 1 Samuel 16 to 31 where he's <clears throat> coming to the throne. Then secondly, all of 2 Samuel. And then 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2. He dies in chapter 2. And then part of 1 Chronicles. Now, how long does David reign? How long does this period cover? Let's take our Bible and turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 5.
Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 11. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So for the first seven, seven and a half years of his reign, he was king over only the tribe of Judah and his capital was Hebron. Now let's go to <clears throat> chapter 5. <coughs> chapter 5, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Verse 1, Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and said to David, We want you to be our king, not only the king of Judah, but also the king of all the, ten, all the twelve tribes. So, verse 3, The elders of Israel came to the king to Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them, the Hebron for Jehovah, and they anointed David king over all, what? Israel. So now he's going to be king of all the nation of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign in Hebron, seven and a half years, and then over Israel, 33 years, and all of his reign was the total of it, how long? And he was 30 years old when he began, so he was 70 years old, when he died. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And that's it. Now, <clears throat> there are four divisions. I divide the life of, of David into four divisions, just as I have them up here. First of all, we have the testings of the king. That's David coming to the throne. This section is just the same as this section over here. Here is the declension of Saul, and here is the rise, rise of David, the declension of Saul and the rise of David, and they both incorporate the same scripture. While, while Saul is declining, David is rising to the throne. He doesn't become the king until this period, but here he's rising to the throne, and, and we've already covered 1 Samuel chapter 16 to 31, so we're not going to cover it again. But this is the testings of David. How, how old was David when, when Samuel went down to Jesse's home and privately anointed David? How old was he? About 16 years old, yes. And how old was he when he came to the throne? 30. So he was, this period covers about 15 years. Matter of fact, it covers from about 1025 to 1010. Saul ruled from 1050 to 1010. David was anointed about 1024, 1025 B.C. And, uh, and for the next 14 and 15 years, uh, this overlaps. Saul is declining. David is rising. He's not yet king here, but he's coming to the throne. 1 Samuel 16, 31. And there are three stages in that. First, David as the shepherd. David is the shepherd. I think that's chapter 16 and 17. David the shepherd. Secondly, David at, at the court of Saul. David at the court of Saul. That's chapters 18 and 19. And then the last part, David the Fugitive, running from Saul, David the fugitive. That's chapters 20 to 31. 
So here's David for about 14, 15 years, from about the age of 15 or 16 till the age of 30. David is rising to the throne. <clears throat> Samuel gets him privately, secretly, and anoints him king. But that news gets out. Saul hears about it. Saul says, I'm going to kill that boy. Tries it. Tries it about a dozen times to kill him. Fails. Saul's son Jonathan says, David, I know you're going to be the next king. I am not. It ought to come to me, but in God's providence it's not. So I've submitted to God's providence, and I'm going to help you come to the throne. And the soul of Jonathan and David were knit together. There was a great love between Saul, uh, Jonathan and David. Now, some of our modern contemporaries like to read into that a homosexual relationship. There's absolutely no trace of that whatsoever in the Old Testament. What those men are doing is reading in their own tendencies into the story of see, David and Saul. That's true. That's all they're doing. There's nothing like that. You know, 25 years ago, a couple of men could travel from Memphis to California and stay in the same hotel and nobody think, motel, nobody think anything about it. Today, for one reason or another, you've got to be careful the way people look on things today. Absolutely no homosexual tendencies. But you know the great strain of life. Two men's souls may be well knitted together. Knitted together. And such was Jonathan and David. And they loved one another more than uh, a love between their own brothers. The soul, it's a beautiful relationship. David is rising. He knows it. But he doesn't lord it over Jonathan. Jonathan knows he's not going to be the next king. Though normally he would be. But Jonathan doesn't fight it. He submits to the providence of God and he protects David and he stands as the buffer between David and his own father, Saul. Not very successfully, but he tries to stand as the buffer. So here's David coming to the throne, first as the shepherd boy, secondly as the boy, as the young man in the court where he behaved himself wisely, played the harp, not the guitar, played the harp, and then third is the fugitive. Now, Saul is killed. Saul commits suicide. So we have the second major section of David's life, the triumphs of David. David established on the throne. David established on the throne the triumphs of David. That's 2 Samuel chapters 1 to 10. 2 Samuel chapters 1 to 10. Now, there are two parts to that story, and you've already seen them. Let's see if we can get through those ten chapters before this period finishes. We don't plan to get through to 9.30, but that'll be all right. <laughs> now, let's see if we can quickly cover this period. There are two, there are two uh, sections to this, uh, uh, to first, Second Samuel 1 to 10, the triumphs of David, triumphs. There are two sections. First of all, uh, A, he becomes king over Judah. That lasts seven and one-half years, king only Judah. And the capital is <clears throat> the city of Hebron, which lies about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. King over Judah. Then secondly, due to certain events, 
he becomes king over all Israel. <coughs> and that's going to last for 33 years. And he moves the capital from Hebron up to Jerusalem. And from that time on, Jerusalem is the capital of the nation of Israel. And it's called the city of David. This lasts seven and a half years. This lasts about 33 years. Now this is covered in 2 Samuel 1 to 4. And this is covered in 2 Samuel 5 to 10. 2 Samuel chapters 1 to 4. Now what takes place, 2 Samuel 1 to 4? Well, three things take place. You've got them in your outline. Let me, <coughs> pardon me, let me state those very quickly. Three things take place. First one is this. Number one, chapter one. 2 Samuel chapter one. First thing that takes place is uh, Saul, uh, David receives the news of Saul's death. And an Amalekite, an Amalekite comes to David. Says, David, I got some news for you. Your enemy, Saul's dead. Oh, said David, is that right? Yes. Well, tell me, how did it happen? Well, says the Amalekite, thinking that he would ingratiate himself with David, he expands on the story in his favor. What he didn't know was it didn't turn out in his favor. See, Saul committed suicide. But when the Amalekite tells the story, thinking, well, David hated Saul. Saul hated David. David must have hated Saul. David would be glad to hear this news. So when the Amalekite tells the story <clears throat> to David, he says, I saw Saul out in the field, and Saul said to me, the battle, the jig is up. Kill me. And so, in obedience to Saul's command, I killed him. Oh, said David, you thought you did a great thing, did you? Oh, yes, I did a great thing for you. Oh, did you? He called a couple of his, boy, uh, his uh, soldiers over. He said, put this man to death. I never touched the Lord's anointed. He's God's anointed. And being God's anointed, I would not dare to put my hand, no matter what he's done to me, I would not dare to put my hand. And you shouldn't have also. And they put the Amalekite to death. Then in the second chapter, chapter 2, the, the tribe of Judah comes to David and says to David, we want you to be the king over the tribe of Judah. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And David is publicly anointed king over the tribe of Judah. That's 2 Samuel 2, chapter 2. He's publicly. Then there's one other event. That's 2 Samuel chapter 3 and 4. Now, I wonder if you would all look up here, listen, because these are the two events that are going to lead over here. Uh, <clears throat> when David is anointed king over the southern tribes, Judah, Judah and Simeon, those two tribes down south, a general by the name of Abner, Abner, General Abner, gets uh, one of Saul's sons named Ishbosheth. And General Abner makes Ishbosheth. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 2. General Abner makes Ishbosheth the king of the ten tribes, Israel. So he got two kings for seven and a half years. Down south, David, the two tribes, 
the capital of Hebron. Up here, the northern ten tribes, uh, Ish-bosheth the king, his general is Abner, David's general is Joab. Now, two things happen. Second Samuel chapter 3 and 4. Number one, Abner, Abner had taken Saul's concubine. You know, kings had several, what we would call virtually, mistresses. And General Abner had had relations with Saul's concubine. But Saul had many concubines, many wives, and here he was a general. Ish-bosheth rebuked Abner for that, and Abner got heated for that. Here I put my life at stake. Here I made you king, and you have the audacity to say this to me. I'll tell you something, he said. I'm through with you. I'm going over to David. So the great leading military genius, and he was a military genius, of the ten northern tribes defected and went to David. But when he went over to David, David already had a general whose name was Joab. And Joab saw some competition. So Joab got a couple of his men, and they killed Abner. And David was saddened and astounded and saddened at that, and he publicly mourned the death of Abner because that was an act of, uh, of infidelity. He had made an agreement, come over. When he came over, he was killed, murdered. So David publicly mourned him to show that he wasn't responsible for the act. But that took away from the northern kingdom their great military leader. They're weak now. That leaves only a weak king by the name of Ish-bosheth. And he's weak, and he knows it. And the Bible says he trembles and his knees knock together. See, he's weak. So uh, what happens to Ish-bosheth? Well, a couple of captains that serve under Ish-bosheth, the king of Israel, plot against Ish-bosheth, and they murder Ish-bosheth. Then they compound it by doing something foolish. They trot down south to David and tell David, David, we've helped you. We put to death your adversary, Ishbosheth. And David said the same thing as he did the other man. He said, Was Ishbosheth the king? Yes. Then he was the Lord's anointed. And I would put my hands on Saul, even though he tried to kill me, because he was the Lord's anointed. And when the Amalekite brought me news that he had killed Saul, I put him to death. Do you think I'm going to do any less to you? Because for no good reason, you've gone ahead and assassinated the king and he ordered his soldier and they killed those two captains. Now what's happened? That's left a vacuum power in the northern kingdom. The leading military genius is gone and the king is dead. And there's a vacuum, a political and military vacuum. So as a consequence of that, the elders, the elders of the ten northern tribes make a trip down to the city of Hebron, and they come to David. And what do you think they say to David? Be our king. Not only Judah, but be our king also. Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 5. Second Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 
to five. <coughs> Second Samuel chapter five, verses one to five. Then came all the tribes of Israel to David unto Hebron and spake, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Times passed when Saul was king over us. It was you that led us out and brought us in. Jehovah said to thee, Thou shalt be shepherd of my people Israel. Thou shalt be prince over it. We remember what God said to you. We recall it. So all the elders of Israel came to King to Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them in Hebron before Jehovah. And they anointed David king over what? So he now becomes king over all the 12 tribes. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years, six months, and Jerusalem, he reigned 30 and three years over all Israel and Judah. Now, we'll have to leave off at that point and pick it up. Now, I want you all to listen carefully. We'll just take a minute here and see what, how to finish this. What we're going to have now, 2 Samuel chapter 5 to 10. And we're going to have about five things take place. First of all, he selected his king. David selected king over all Israel. Secondly, second thing that takes place is a new capital. He moves his capital up to Jerusalem. Third, that's the rest of chapter 5. Third thing that takes place, third thing that takes place is they bring up the ark. That's chapter, chapter 6. They bring the ark up to Jerusalem. So that Jerusalem, as it somewhat is today, Jerusalem becomes the political and religious center of Israel. He's made it the capital here, and he's brought the ark up, which is the center of God, of the worship of God in Israel. So Jerusalem becomes a political and religious center of Israel. Then the fourth thing, God, uh, David says, I want to build a house for you, a temple. God said, no, you're a man of war, you can't. You're not going to build it. You're not going to build for me a house but I'm going to build for you a house, a dynasty. And God gives to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 those great promises that we call the Davidic covenant, which tell David that he's going to have a, a dynasty forever, and the last one in that dynasty was Jesus. Second, a kingdom, that's territory, and third, a throne, that's the seat of authority like Paris or Washington or Moscow. A thousand years later, when the angel came to Mary, she said, the Lord God is giving to your son. He'll be called Jesus. He'll be born great. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, will establish his house, and will give him the kingdom. One thousand years later, those three promises, the promise of a kingdom, territory, of a dynasty, the same house, and of a seat of authority, a throne. My friend, may I say to you, in anticipating that premillennialism is based on that unconditional covenant that God gave to David, reconfirmed in the Psalms, 
and reaffirmed to Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 1, never been abrogated. And someday, Jesus Christ will come back to this earth, establish his throne in Jerusalem, extend his authority over Israel in the very land that he gave to them, and be the King of kings and Lord of lords in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Then the fifth thing that we have is the expansion of, of David's kingdom so that when he takes us over, it's only a small part. When he finishes, it's a large part. Now, these two charts will give you some idea of the territorial developments of Palestine. Here's Palestine after Joshua's conquest. See, this is just a small, small section. It's even smaller under the reign of Saul. When David finishes it, the same part, here it is right here, this, this section right here, these are the lines right there, that's under Saul. Chapters 8, 9, and 10, I have them all underlined in my Bible. That's why Bill Ware brought it. I asked him, he volunteered to bring it, I, and I needed it. I've got them all underlined. He, he ha executed campaigns against the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Philistines, all these surrounding nations, and expanded his kingdom, and it was the greatest empire of the 10th century B.C., and he handed all of this to Solomon on a platter before he died. And here is the kingdom of Saul, of, of David. Saul's kingdom is only a little bit right in here. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, he fought against and conquered the Philistines. He fought against the Syrians called the Arameans, took Zobah, took Damascus. He conquered the Ammonites. He conquered the Moabites. He conquered the Amalekites. He conquered the Edomites. Very important. Why? Because Philistia had access to the iron mines and knew how to smelt iron mine, iron, and therefore were able to develop chariots. The Jews could not. Therefore, they were defeated. Down here were the iron mines. So David conquered the Moabites and the Edomites, put military garrisons down here so they'd have access to those iron mines and David built up a great military machine. Then he went north, way up here to Hamath and Kadesh. By the time he was through, he had conquered all of this territory and laid part of it under tribute. That is, they had to pay taxes to him. And all of this was the Davidic Empire and the greatest empire of its day. Now, we're going to read about that next time in our class. We're going to close in prayer.